Our text for today is John chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, and this is the Word of God. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man." Pray with me, friends. Father, now I plead with you to add your blessing to the reading and the study and the application of your word. May this result in repentance and faith and to your name being glorified. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And you may be seated. There is belief, and then there's belief. You know what I mean? There's the belief that says, okay, I will accept that what you've just said to me is a fact. Then there's the belief that says, the fact that I believe will change my life. In the book of James, we see that there's a faith that saves and one that's empty and meaningless. After all, even the demons, evil, unredeemable spirits believe. They know that God is. They tremble in fear of God's coming wrath upon them, but their belief doesn't make them seek to serve the Lord, doesn't make them come to Him for mercy. And in our passage for today, we're going to come across two kinds of belief. One belief is the kind of belief that saves a soul. The other belief is the kind of belief that leaves one empty. One leads to heaven. One leads to hell. And I want to encourage you, as we get ready to dive in, I want you to ask God to help you to know which kind of belief is yours. In the study today, there will be only two key points. Now, the last time we gathered and looked at the gospel according to John, Jesus had done something a little bit shocking. During the days of the Passover feast, Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem, and while he was there, Jesus walked into the court of the Gentiles, into the area where the sellers of animals and the changers of money were plying their trade. Using a whip, that he made of some cords. Jesus drove out the animal sellers and the money changers. He drove out the animals. He called on the bird sellers to get their cages out of there. And Jesus made it really clear that the worship of God was not to be tainted by turning the space into a place of business. All these things took place during the very beginning days 
of Jesus' public ministry, not long after his miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana. And perhaps it's because it's so early in Jesus' ministry here that there's not a stronger reaction to what he's done. When Jesus comes back to the temple and does the same thing three years later, the week will end with Christ's crucifixion after a farcical set of illegal trials at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. But right here, early in Jesus' ministry, we're going to see that the religious leaders, they're going to question Jesus, but they're not so resolved as to try to have him killed for disrupting the market and calling for holiness in the temple. Same time, the passionate action of Jesus right here at the beginning of his ministry reminds his own disciples of the Bible's prediction that zeal for the house and the worship of God would be a consuming drive for the Messiah. First, this morning, we're going to look at the response of Jesus' own disciples to his cleansing the temple and his conversation with the religious leaders. Then we'll see another group responding to Jesus during the week of the same feast. So, you ready to get started? Point number one, believe in Jesus. Point number one, super simple, believe in Jesus. That'll be a point, gosh, almost every sermon in the gospel according to John, if we do it right. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Immediately after Jesus drove the money changers, the animal sellers out of the temple grounds, he is confronted by a Jewish religious leader group. John doesn't tell us here exactly which men these were. Are these important men? Are they high ranking? Are they a delegation from the Sanhedrin? We don't know. But whoever these men were, they believed that they had the right to question Jesus about what Jesus had just done. After all, Jesus had just made quite a scene. He had just disrupted a highly profitable business and he did it on the temple grounds during the week of a major feast. And what the Jews want to know is just who Jesus, this as yet unknown teacher, believes himself to be. Who do you think you are? What gives Jesus the right to overturn tables and stampede temple critters. And they ask him in a strange way. The Jewish leaders ask Jesus, what sign will you do to show us for doing these things? The word sign here, we've seen it before. It's found at the end of the story of Jesus turning the water to wine. John 2, 11. If you look up just a little bit in this chapter, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. A sign here, it's a miracle performed, particularly to prove the identity of the person who's doing the work, that they're doing the work of God. And the sign should show everybody that this person who did what he's done is special. We studied that first sign Jesus performed a couple weeks ago. Now, Let's make a little side note for you who are, again, I I don't want to say nerds, but I don't have another word for this. You who like structure and outlines of books of the Bible, you call yourself whatever you want. 
The fourth gospel is really neatly arranged because John will focus us as we study this book on seven signs that Jesus performs. Seven sermons or discourses Jesus speaks and seven sayings of Jesus. I am sayings of Jesus. Did you know that? The seven signs that he will perform that John will focus you on. Jesus will turn water into wine. He will heal a man's servant from miles away. He will heal a man who's been unable to walk for nearly 40 years. He will feed 5,000 with one kid's lunch. He will walk on water. He will give sight to a man born blind. And he will raise Lazarus from the dead. Those are the seven signs. The seven sermons occur, chapter 3 on new birth, chapter 4 on the water of life, chapter 5 when Jesus Talks, to him, talks of himself as the divine son of God. Chapter 6 on the bread of life. Chapter 7 on the life-giving spirit. Chapter 8 on the light of the world. Chapter 10 on Jesus as the good shepherd. And then there are seven I am sayings. And I mean by that, the, the word I am followed by a predicate nominative. I am followed by Jesus saying, I am this. So for example, I am the bread of life the light of the world, the good shepherd, the door for the sheep, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. Seven signs, seven sermons, seven sayings. There's a little side note on how John's put together. Isn't it beautiful? It's just beautiful. Now, I doubt very seriously that the Jews who are asking Jesus for a sign even knew about Jesus' sign at Cana, turning the water to wine. That was done fairly privately. It was seen only by the disciples and the servants who were at the feast. But the Jews knew that Jesus had just made a massive religious statement. Jesus was claiming to have the authority to say what should happen in the temple. And the Jewish leadership assumes that the only way anybody could correct the high priestly family on the running of the temple would be for that person to be a powerful prophet from God. Then verses 19 and 20. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Jesus offers the Jews a sign, but they're not about to understand it. Jesus is not simply going to start doing miracles to amuse the teachers and prove himself to their satisfaction. After all, Jesus knows no amount of signs performed will change a dead, hardened heart. You guys know that too, don't you? Think back in the Old Testament, Pharaoh in Egypt. Did Pharaoh see signs? He saw sign after sign after sign. I could say it 10 times. But he only hardened his heart against God. People who do not want to obey God will never be convinced based on evidence alone. Only the working of God's Holy Spirit can make a dead heart alive. And only God making a dead heart alive will make somebody believe. And what Jesus says right here, it's a little bit mysterious. Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. 
His words definitely confuse the Jews. They think he is literally speaking of the physical temple complex, the buildings and all the rest, so they probably think he's nuts, which is why, maybe another reason why they're not taking him very seriously right now. The Jews say to Jesus, the temple has been under renovation for the past 46 years. Have any of y'all ever done any home renovation projects? Anybody still working on a bathroom or a kitchen? Feels like 46 years. Well, King Herod the Great began renovating the Temple on the Mount around the year 20 B.C. Herod died the year 4 B.C., but the project rolled on. The Temple renovation project was completed around A.D. 63 or maybe 64, about six years before the Temple was finally destroyed by the Romans. Now, here's an interesting side note again. Because we know when Herod began work on renovating the temple, we can actually pretty easily calculate that this conversation takes place around the year A.D. 27. And that helps us to know that this occurs at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, not at the end. And, as I said in Sunday school, this is actually one of the reasons I'm convinced that Jesus was born around 4 B.C. and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, they took place around the year A.D. 30. All the numbers work together right there now to the jews a claim that you could build a temple in three days that took 46 years to construct the first time was absurd and of course they were missing jesus's point look at 21 and 22 but he was speaking about the temple of his body When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus was saying something far bigger, far deeper than what the Jews understood. They thought he was talking about miraculously building a bunch of temple buildings in a complex, but Jesus actually was making reference to his own death and his resurrection after three days. You want to think about this in an interesting way. I think Jesus is here speaking in a very similar way to that which he spoke to Moses in the Old Testament. Do you remember when Moses wanted a sign from God to prove that what God had said at the burning bush would come to pass? God said to Moses from the burning bush that he would lead Egypt out of Egypt. What's the sign? I got to speak this right. What's the sign God gave Moses from the burning bush to prove that he would lead Israel out of Egypt. Do you remember? He said, the sign is that you guys are going to worship me right here on this mountain. The sign would be seen after the miracle was performed. Similarly, Jesus tells the Jews here, The sign that I have the authority to command the temple and what happens in the temple is going to be the sign of my resurrection. And that sign will only make sense after the miracle has taken place and the temple ministry is absolutely irrelevant. I also think we should find it interesting that Jesus uses the metaphor of the temple for his body. Something more significant is happening here than Jesus just refusing to perform a miracle for the unbelieving Jews. 
Jesus here is making his followers think of him in the same thought, in the same mental breath as the temple. Thinking of Jesus with the Old Testament system. When we think of the Old Testament system and we hear Jesus say this, we should start thinking about the fact that there's something alike in Jesus and the temple. And we should be thinking about the fact that there's something different. You know, three weeks ago, we studied the miracle at the wedding feast in Cana. We saw there Jesus also made a comparison between himself and the old system. Jesus took ceremonial water jars, jars that were used for the Jewish rite of purification, and he had them filled up with water. And then Jesus miraculously had that water turned to wine. And in that miracle, Jesus showed that something greater than the Old Testament system was arriving. Here, Jesus says his body is the true temple. You know, the temple, the tabernacle, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, it's always been a shadow of something to come. It's a pointer toward something better. The sacrifices of animals in the Old Testament, they were like placeholders, a a spiritual IOU to remind the Lord that true sacrifice for sins was on its way. The temple depicted for everybody who could see it the sign of God being present with mankind. The sacrificial system reminds us of the the one blood sacrifice that can really remove sins from God's people. The temple system reminds us that God will never let sin, not one single sin, go unpunished. Because either the sinner will suffer death or the Lord will accept a worthy substitute to pay the price for that sin. But if the temple is left without its promise fulfilled, God would never have forgiven his people. And God would have never come to live with and in us. Jesus Christ fulfills the temple's promise. How? Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the sacrifice who by his blood pays the penalty for our sins. And unlike the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of Jesus is of infinite worth and perfect purity, and it purchases the pardon of God for the evils of every one God will ever forgive. In the heart of the gospel, friends, our penal substitution propitiation, and imputation. Those are some lovely words for your Sunday morning. Penal substitution. And once you think of the word penalty, P-E-N-A-L, that is a substitute pays the penalty because the sinner could not survive it. Is that not the cross? It's perfectly what Jesus came to do. Propitiation means that once the sacrifice has been made, the sin of the sinner is covered and the Lord can now relate to the the, the forgiven sinner with love and favor instead of in wrath. Imputation means that God will credit your account 
with the righteousness of Jesus so that you can be able to enter his presence even as he counted Jesus guilty of your sin when he punished him on the cross. But how do we know? How can we know that the person and the work of Jesus can make people like you and me right with God? How can we know Jesus really is the truth to which the whole temple system pointed? The answer is in what Jesus said to the Jews. Kill him. Kill him, and in three days he will rise. The resurrection of Jesus completed the work and proved beyond any doubt that Jesus is exactly who Jesus claimed to be. The resurrection tells us Jesus fully paid for all the sins God would ever forgive. The resurrection proves that Jesus perfectly fulfilled everything the temple pointed toward. The resurrection tells us that all who come to Jesus have eternal life. In Jesus' name. So how do you and I respond to this? What was the point? Remember what the point was? What's point one? Believe in Jesus. Good. The disciples remembered what Jesus had said, and after his resurrection, they believe. They believe in Jesus. I mean, goodness, they believed in Jesus in 2.11, after they saw his first sign at Cana. But after the resurrection, oh, after the resurrection, they had genuine, soul-saving, life-changing, eternity-guaranteeing faith. Christians believe. Believe and find strength. Believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Remember what it tells you about Jesus. Jesus completed the work that the sacrificial system only hinted at. Jesus took away from you, if you believe in Jesus, if you're a Christian, he took away from you the guilt of your sin. Jesus satisfied on your behalf the anger of God for the wrongs that you've done. And like a perfect, innocent lamb, Jesus lived the clean perfection and the righteousness you've never lived. And Jesus gives that righteousness to you as a gift of imputed righteousness before God. He treats you Get this, don't miss this. Jesus treats believers as if we had always and perfectly obeyed the commands of God. And believe that the resurrection of Jesus proves his authority and his priority. Jesus is Lord. Do you know that? There is none other that has a claim on your life like Jesus. Jesus' worship is your number one priority. It's your reason for existing. His claim to your obedience is absolute. So you can serve Jesus. You can die in your service to Jesus, and because of the resurrection of Jesus, you can know that that is a death worth dying. You can surrender to his word. You can obey his commands regardless of what society thinks, because after all, our society has never once defeated death. But you know what? 
Jesus did. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus has total claim on our lives and his resurrection proves it. And believe in the resurrection of Jesus for hope. Jesus beat death. Listen to me. Do not fear death if you know Jesus. Our culture has basically collapsed over the fear of death for the past year. Our government has used fear of death to reshape the culture to its own whims. Don't give in to the fear of death if you know the resurrected Savior. Don't let the fear of death Stop you from making the Lord your number one. And if you hear me this morning and you've never come to Jesus for life, I urge you by the authority of the word of Almighty God, believe. Believe in Jesus, his death and his resurrection. They're all the proof you're going to get. But his resurrection proves that he has the right to command you. And Jesus says to you, you must come to him to find forgiveness in life. And Jesus tells you that everyone who comes to him in genuine faith will be forgiven. So I urge you in Jesus' name, turn from your sin. Let go of your authority over your life. Surrender to Jesus. Believe the scriptures and come to him in faith. Believe for salvation. True faith in Jesus always saves. But there is a sort of faith that doesn't save. There's a sort of belief that doesn't change a life. And I'll show you an example of that in our second point, the only other point we have for today. Point number two, guard against false faith. Point number two, guard against false faith. And it's going to be verses 23 to 25 Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So this little three-verse section here, this is a little connecting passage It connects us to what we saw happening in the temple in Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees or whoever they were and a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus that we'll see in chapter 3. This little three-verse section lets us know that Jesus, after he cleansed the temple and drove all the animals out and whatever, he stayed in Jerusalem throughout the Passover week And during that week of his ministry in Jerusalem, Jesus is doing more miracles, miracles that John doesn't even focus us on. And I would assume that those would be what? I mean, healings, and maybe he drives out some demons. They're all over the synoptic gospels. But John doesn't want your focus on those miracles right now. John wants your focus on the hearts that those miracles reveal. Look at verse 23. 
The Bible says many believed, that's an important word, in Jesus' name when they saw his miracles. That sounds like cause for celebration, doesn't it? We just said you need to believe in Jesus to have life. And the Greek word for believe there, in case you want to know, is the Greek word pistuo. And that is a non-nuanced, there's nothing weird about that word. It is the verb form for having faith, for believing. It means believe. It is precisely the same Greek word that was used in 22 to say that the disciples, after Jesus' resurrection, believed. It's the same word used in verse 11 that told us that the disciples who saw Jesus' first sign believed. And this would feel nice and normal and lovely if verse 24 didn't come right after 23. It says, but Jesus on his part did not, you see the word there, entrust himself to them? Do you have that in your Bibles? Something like it? You want to guess what Greek word is behind the word entrust? It's pistuo. It's the same word for belief. What John says is many believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. John is letting us know that at that feast, in response to the miracles of Jesus, many people had some sort of faith And that faith that they had did not save their souls. All through the Bible, friends, God has been clear that outward claims of belief, outward shows of religion that do not reach the heart, do not honor God. You cannot live hating God, perform a religious requirement, and then pretend that all is well. Salvation, being right with God, has always been a thing received by God's grace through faith. Even in the Old Testament, the people who were made right with God were made right by God's grace, and their response to God's grace was their obedience to the law of God in faith. People perform sacrifices in faith, believing the promises of God that those who did those things would be forgiven. But salvation has always been about God's grace through faith. It has never been a thing that you earn through your deeds. Never. Old or New Testament, you don't earn salvation by your deeds. But, listen to me. Old Testament or New, there has never been salvation For those who do religious things without hearts that are changed by and turned toward the Lord. I want you to listen to Jeremiah 7. If you want to turn there, you may. I want to read you a section from the beginning of Jeremiah 7. 1 through 11. And I want you to hear what I'm saying to you, even from the Old Testament about the need for faith to be genuine and not word only, okay? Jeremiah 7, listen to these words. Let them pierce you 
The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Could God say more to get your attention, guys? You with me? He says this. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold! This is God saying, pay attention. Behold! You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Do you feel it? The weight of those words? Imagine a person living for evil, opposing the Lord refusing to repent and then running to the place of sacrifice. Imagine that person declaring, I must be right with God because after all, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Knowing that the temple stood, knowing the sacrificial practices was never going to bring forgiveness to a person who hates God and refuses to be under his lordship. So why then would we assume that just any old person who just says, I believe in God, is okay? Why then would we believe that just any old person who claims Jesus actually knows Jesus? Belief in the facts concerning Jesus, if that belief does not involve the changing of your heart and your life, is not a belief that saves your soul. Next week, we're going to get into Jesus talking to Nicodemus. We'll see there's a picture there of new life. You've got to be born again. That's what you've got to have if you want to be saved. Later in John 3, 36, we're going to be reminded that true faith always saves, but true faith is tied inextricably to obedience. 
Paul says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. But in Romans 10, 9, in that same paragraph, Paul says that part of calling on the name of Jesus is that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believing in his saving work requires your surrender to him as Lord. So what am I saying to you? Am I suggesting that true faith doesn't save? Not in the least. I'm not saying that. True faith always, always, always saves. But a faith that is merely intellectual assent a mere suggestion that you will accept certain facts but which lacks change in your life or change in your heart is not a true and saving faith. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you failed to meet the test? I'm saying the same thing here. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Did your faith change you? Do you have a faith that has led to more than something changing in your brain? Does your faith lead you to love the Lord so that you will obey his word? Has your faith included commitment to our God? Guard yourself against receiving, accepting, believing in a false faith. Don't be content with any religion that doesn't change your soul. Don't be content with knowledge that doesn't reach your heart. Don't trust in a prayer prayed in the past as though mouthing a few words is what saves your soul. Don't trust in a religious ceremony like a baptism in your past if that baptism was not an outward declaration of true soul-saving faith. Run instead to Jesus and believe in Jesus with all your heart and all your soul and cry out to Jesus that he would change you from the inside out. Jesus, he was never impressed with the Jews who believed in him that week of the Passover because their faith was only in their heads. They were impressed by his power. They couldn't deny the miracles, but they were not about to follow him. Jesus knew them. Jesus knew their hearts. And let me assure you, Jesus knows your heart too. He can see right through your soul. He knows if you're playing games with him or if you really long to belong to him. Look at verses 24, 25. I want to show you one more thing. One more glorious thing about Jesus before we're done. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Watch this. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Please understand this. Jesus knew all people. He knew what was in man. Jesus knew these people's hearts. Ask yourself, what does that tell me about Jesus? And I will draw this out for you from, with an interesting verse in the Old Testament. 
This is from when King Solomon was praying to dedicate the temple, the first temple, to the worship of God. But listen to what Solomon says about the Lord, about Yahweh. 1 Kings 8, 39, Solomon says, Then here in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act, and render to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways. Listen to this. For you, you only, know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Did you hear that? Solomon said of God, you, you only know the hearts of mankind. Only God knows the hearts of men. Only Yahweh, only the God who made us, only the God who we must serve. Only he knows the hearts of mankind. Now let me remind you of some words from the Gospels. In Matthew 9, verse 4, it says, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Luke chapter 9, verse 47 says, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. In John 2, 25, John says to us about Jesus, He himself knew what was in man. Only God knows the hearts of man. Jesus knows the hearts of man. Jesus, therefore, is God. Look at that. Another claim to the deity of the Lord Jesus in the gospel. As God, Jesus knows you. He sees your heart. As God, he has every right to demand that you honor him and obey him. As God, Jesus is willing, eagerly, sweetly willing to give mercy and grace to anyone who will come to him for that mercy. As God, Jesus will powerfully judge, eternally judge those who would turn their backs on him and seek to be their own masters. Hear me today. Believe in Jesus. Believe for real. Believe and cast your very soul at his feet for his mercy. Repent and believe. Know that true faith genuinely saves. Know that pretend faith, a, faith, a false faith, a head-only faith does not save. Jesus is God. Jesus is the one the whole sacrificial system hinted would come. Jesus is the Lamb of God who died to take away our sins. Jesus is the one who will eagerly pardon, repent, believe, be saved, and live to serve the Lord Jesus. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, even now, Lord, we, by your grace, believe in Jesus. We believe in more than head we believe in heart. At least we pray that we do. Take this and pierce our souls, God, and draw us to love and trust Jesus more. That is our prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen.